0: This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast.
1: We want to talk about uh, the meeting that went on yesterday at Hamilton City Hall. We talked earlier about the uh, discussion, such as it was, about uh, getting some information about converting Main Street. But uh, the uh, the essence of the meeting was about light rail transit and some of the implications and some of the impacts that it's going to have. And uh, Paul Johnson, the director of the LRT project, uh, is, uh, well, he's... Trying to get as much information out there as possible, and and still an awful lot of questions from some councilors uh, about the impacts, and uh, and I guess what is coloring some people's opinions about this are some of the stories we're hearing in other cities that uh, are in the construction phase of their LRT projects or implementation of them anyway, and uh, it's not going as smoothly as some people had anticipated in places like Toronto and Ottawa and KW. Uh, is that going to happen here? Well, let's ask Paul Johnson, who is the director of the LRT project here in Hamilton. He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show. Good morning, Paul. How are you doing today?
0: I'm doing well, Bill.
1: Uh, long meeting yesterday, but I thought some rather interesting and, and, and I think very important questions were being asked.
0: Oh yeah, you know the LRT subcommittee meetings are are, are great, and I've said some from day one. It's so helpful to have a committee that is single hand, single focused in terms of helping us implement this project. So. Uh, that's time well spent, and, and it wasn't the 12 hours of the uh, the uh, GIC, so that was good news, too.
1: <laughs> it's it's nice to have a break. Uh, let's, let's get right to uh, one of the more contentious issues, though. Uh, the comparator of this project to what's going on in some other cities. I, I mentioned uh, the Ottawa situation uh, when you joined us the last time a few days ago, and about, uh, you know, they had a, a cave in there, and there's a real construction project, uh, uh, slowdowns that are going on there, and the impact it's having. Uh, this is a different beast, though. That's an apples and oranges comparison isn't it
0: it is uh, you know a number of the lines uh, in in Ottawa and Toronto that are being built have underground components uh, they're actually tunneling and it portions the uh, the light rail uh, transit uh, piece uh, will run under the surface of the road in Hamilton we, we don't have this this is a surface uh, LRT system uh, that's not to say our construction isn't complex we've got a, a host of utilities that need to be relocated but this will be, uh, you know, opening up the road, moving utilities, something that happens every year in this community in certain parts of the city. Um, and we'll be doing that along the LRT corridor and then putting the rail bed in. Uh, and it will all be surface rail, of course, uh, here in
1: Hamilton. Is the, uh, the, the that element of the project, in other words, replacing the utilities that, that are under there, is that going to happen along the whole route or are there some sections that may not have to be done?
0: Uh, we're investigating that right now. In fact, we're actually, you know, we've got crews. Uh, uh, looking under the, the ground, we're trying to build that 3D imaging of it. Uh, I would say that uh, almost everywhere there will have to be some amount of relocation. This is such a narrow corridor, it's unlikely that, that we... Uh that we have everything to the side already um but there will be sections of it that will be more complex than others that's the work we're trying to do now uh you know as i said in the past the important part about getting the right price for this project when metrolink goes to the market is to make sure that we can tell those who are bidding on this project uh precisely where the things are that they're going to need to move in what state they are and uh that helps them better price this project and helps us get a better, a better deal, and ensures that we can include everything we want in this project.
1: I guess, in a most elementary f- manner, though, I mean, when you look at the work that needs to be done here, once that track is in there, it's going to be very difficult to to tear that up to put uh, utilities or repair utilities. So you may as well do it now.
0: The working premise is let's not have anything below the uh, uh, the, the the light rail uh, transit uh, uh, guideway that we would need to rip up or. Get to to maintain in some ways because doing that, of course, then shuts down your system. So the goal, of course, is to have access to it from the side or to move uh, the actual elements that are below the uh, uh, the track uh, to the side, and so that's the working premise. Uh, how well you can do that to 100% uh, remains to be seen as we do the utility investigations. But the goal is do it now uh and it's also a part of this project that uh, I think is a bit of a good news story for the community along this route we're going to be looking at at uh, infrastructure upgrades uh, when things are moved uh, like for like is replaced as part of the project cost and not part of the uh the net levy impact to this community the only uh, uh chance that there would be for city investment is if we want to make the enhancements which would be because we believe developments coming and new economic activities coming so it's pretty pretty much a good news story
1: the number one question I get anytime that, that I'm out anywhere, or emails that I receive almost on a daily basis about LRT, Paul, is uh, is the one that you got yesterday again from from one of the members of the uh, the committee. Uh, who's going to run this and who's going to pay for the maintenance costs?
0: So uh, right now, the the working assumption is that this is uh, this is going to be built. It's going to be operated and maintained uh, through an agreement with a private sector organization, and that's very similar to what's happening in Kitchener Waterloo. And so the operations of this, there would actually be a, a private sector firm that's part of the consortium. So you'd have somebody be building this, somebody who obviously knows construction, and then you'd, you'd have as part of that consortium somebody who's going to operate this and the maintaining part of it. Uh, the period of time we're looking at is uh, is uh, uh, about thirty years is what uh, we're working under is the assumption. And so the good news with that is that those that are building it have to operate and maintain it for thirty years. And so the theory behind this way of, of procuring and building this project is obviously they're going to build it to a way that uh, sustains that period of time because they're the ones that are going to be operating and maintaining it. What we're learning looking at other projects now, and particularly the report that we took yesterday uh around Toronto, is how the the money works out. <laughs> so that's the way it's actually built. And it always comes down to that, doesn't and, it? And then there's the other side of, well, on a day-to-day basis, how do we pay for this? Because transit requires subsidy, <laughs> and, and that's the reality in Hamilton today with our HSR, and it's the reality as we build uh, a stronger transit system throughout the community. And so what we're seeing are, are some pieces of good news and, and actually uh, some potentials to, uh, to knock off some of those questions from councillors who were, for instance, uh, worried that we would lose gas tax revenue. Well, in Toronto, they were told very clearly that's not going to happen, that we may lose the revenue from this line. And in Toronto, what they're saying is Toronto will keep the revenues and Toronto will be responsible for some of those day-to-day costs. The other really good news story I think that came out of the looking at the Toronto model is that the province will be the one funding the life cycle costs. So as track needs to be replaced, as vehicles need to be replaced, as uh, this infrastructure goes through its renewal phases, whether it's after 30 years or, 30 years or 50 years, uh, that that's a provincial investment that happens, not a local investment. So those are some of the pieces that, uh, uh, that are good news stories, but the reality is that uh, we have to make sure that this is... Uh, you know, uh, something that keeps our transit system whole, it can't take away from the rest of our transit system. It needs to be
1: the best deal for Hamilton. So, because that's that's one of the other costs. Obviously, the fares, where that's going to go. Now, you, you, my understanding from what we heard yesterday is that uh, in Toronto, anyway, the TTC, the Toronto Transit Commission, there they keep the fares correctly. It's not divvied up with the province and the city.
0: No, it's. uh uh fair box revenue and and uh what is called non fare box revenue, so all the revenues essentially it runs the same way the transit system runs today okay uh, the municipalities uh, keep the revenues and of course with LRT, then uh you know as it is today the day to day operations of that so um uh, uh, those costs are are also what the city has to uh, negotiate with metrolink and this and uh in our case uh, could be with this third party operator, so those are the pieces that you then have to. Uh, wrestle to the ground. The other important piece is that the municipality is setting the fares and setting the service standards. And so those are really important things, I think, for Hamiltonians in general. Uh, We've stated very clearly this is to be a transfer system. It's to be a single fare system, not a premium service. So when you're on a bus, you can transfer to the LRT and vice versa and pay one fare and pay the same fare. So those are important things that we're getting a glimpse of important to recognize we haven't started negotiations, <laughs> but as you well know, whatever is negotiated first, it tends to find its way into the other negotiations. So I, I think these are the kinds of things that are helpful as we uh, wait for our uh, chance to negotiate with Metrolink.
1: Well, since Toronto's already done it, I mean, you obviously would use that agreement, I would think, as a template, wouldn't you?
0: Well, we'll certainly use the good things, <laughs> and then we'll try and get a better deal on the things that... Uh, uh, that matter and and the things that matter, of course, are what's the net levy impact at the end of the day, the operations of this and uh, you know Toronto's numbers uh, were put out there, but their systems are very different, and as we said, you know some tunneling, some stations rather than just stop locations, all those types of things so there's still going to be a money issue at the end of the day, but certainly these very uh, important things from a council perspective about gas tax impact, uh, you know both revenue, and how that's uh, how that's uh, uh, staying with the city, setting the fares, those types of things. All of those pieces, really pleased that that's already part of the framework in Toronto because it makes it easier for us to fight for that here.
1: Why haven't the negotiations on, on those items begun yet?
0: The big thing is we still don't know exactly what we're building. Operations and maintenance is uh, kind of dependent on what you're building. So as, as of yesterday, uh, we're, we've been sent away to look at the, the feasibility of adding another stop. Well, adding another stop adds to your operating costs. Uh, your running time, all of those things uh, need to be investigated. So you can't start sitting down uh, and negotiating those pieces until you actually know what your design looks like. So some of this work won't happen until, uh, you know, getting into 2017, when we know what the design looks like, we know what our system is, and we can start to put some cost to that. The other piece is, of course, uh, under our procurement model, the final operating maintenance agreement would have to include uh, the, the information from whoever the successful bidder is, and that won't occur until uh, 2018.
1: Do you have a ballpark figure, because I, I follow the debate, obviously, about whether or not you are going to put an extra stop in there at Bay Street, uh, uh, which you say is going to add extra costs. How much, is there a ballpark idea how much each one of those stops would cost?
0: The, uh, uh, if it's as simple as adding a stop, the costs are somewhere between three and five million and on a billion dollar project, fairly negligible. And to be fair, I don't think, you know, from an operations perspective, a huge, huge impact. It is very close to the James Street stop, but probably something we could get around. The thing that we're going to have to look at is what are the other costs that may be, you know, if, if the... Stop can't be accommodated in the right of way width, and we have to purchase property in order to put the stop there. There's an additional cost. If the utilities under there require some work that we hadn't anticipated, there's an additional cost. If the power uh, that's required to have 15 stops along the route instead of 13 requires us to put more uh, infrastructure for electricity, there's another cost. So at its at its lowest, not really a huge issue, but that's why we have to go away and, and, and do some weeks' worth of work just to make sure that we understand the full cost.
1: I, I know you're not in the habit of designing these things on the run, but uh, I'm I'm just thinking in my mind's eye as you're explaining about that. And, of course, if you look at that intersection at King and, and Bay Street, you own a, a surface parking lot right there. Is that an advantage?
0: Um, certainly it's. It- you know, as we look along the corridor, there's uh, when I just go on Google Earth and look at it. Um, you know, the advantages of, of a bit of the openness and, and what's there uh, certainly are, are stronger than some of the other areas where we're we're having to mm-hmm. do a lot more design and engineering work. But um, yeah, it's 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 not a long and exhaustive process. It's really about running those numbers, ensuring that that we've just crossed all of those things off the list. Because, uh, as I say, it's not just what's on the surface, which is a relatively low cost, it's everything else around it, including the traffic movements, uh, we've, of course assumed that intersection doesn't have a stop, and stops and traffic interact in a different way than when you just have an intersection without a stop. So we'll run all those things, uh, report back. It shouldn't take too long. We've been doing that work since October on the gauge stop because the community uh, was adamant that we put the gauge stop back in. So it takes, uh, takes a month or so to run those things, and then we'll be able to say here's where we think we're at.
1: We uh, had members of the ATU on, and you know there was a rally last week uh, about about transit uh, down at City Hall, and and one of their p- points of contention obviously is uh, is they want to have control of this thing, and and they want to be able to say that their their employees are going to be uh, staffing uh, the LRT. Has that been determined yet? Who's going to do that?
0: Um, so in its final final form, no. Uh, we have to sign off on that fairly quickly so that uh, Metrolinks can start to go to the market and say to the market, here's the parameters under which you're building and operating this uh, uh, this project. So we've got a little bit of time and we've been asked to raise those questions. Uh, I've done it at my level with Metrolinks and we'll continue to do that with the senior levels at Metrolinks uh, and report back um, you know, very quickly to the either LRT subcommittee or GIC depending on, uh, on timing. Um, so fully determined no, but all along this project has been announced Uh, as a private sector partnership, which would mean that the operations of that. Now, who actually sits in the seat and whether that that workforce is is unionized, whether it's under the ATU locally here? uh, I mean, all of those things are are not something I can comment on. But uh, in terms of who would actually be owning it and and operating it, uh, right now it is a third party, a private sector third party but we'll uh, we'll see what the final verdict
1: is on that who are those private sector people uh, who you've you mentioned that I know at the meeting and you you wanted to underscore that and you've mentioned it a couple of times today You've you 've talked about this uh design build finance operate maintain project with a private sector partner that's going to work with you i guess and Metrolinks. Uh, on this project, are there are there companies out there that are doing this sort of thing now? Or do you have somebody in your in in mind, or, or, or just explain to us exactly who, what this is all about and who this person or that company might actually be?
0: So, because of the size and and scope of this project. What it is is a series of companies that come together to form a consortium to, to build this type of project. So, of course, you need people that are, that are experts in, in construction and other pieces. Uh, you know, I know on some of the other projects that are out there, so, you know, we're not sharing anything about our project. It's just, well, who else is doing this? But Ellis Don, you know, company everybody's heard of, people yeah. know, uh, they're in the construction business, and they're, they're working on LRT projects. And so within that, there are, there are companies that believe in Kitchener-Waterloo, for instance, it may be is the name of the company, uh, but there are companies that specialize in operations of these types of systems, and they do it around the world. And what they have is an infrastructure behind them uh, to allow that to happen. You know, the difference when people say, well, how come in Toronto the TTC is operating? Well, the TTC has a history of this already. <laughs> the TTC has been running rail-type services, whether it's streetcar or otherwise. Uh, for a while. In Hamilton, I mean, we had it at one point, but we don't have that infrastructure knowledge, and we don't have a system that needs to be integrated from a rail perspective right now. We certainly have a transit system that needs to be integrated, and we'll make sure that happens. But it could go either way in this community. But, um, you know, the, the people that will build this will call themselves something different. Uh, Grand Link, I think, is what it is in Kitchener-Waterloo. But the component parts, you know, the essence, Lavalands of the world, Ellis Don, some of those players. And then, of course, you have financiers behind it. You'll have all sorts of subcontractors. But they need to come in as a single entity, and they need to prove they can do all the elements of this project. We're not, you know, Metrolinks won't be going out piece by piece. Uh, striking deals. It will be with one consortium who can do
1: it all. So who's going to be around the table? Once this is all signed, sealed, and delivered, you've got this consortium that you're talking about. Is MetroLink's there and is the City of Hamilton at that table too? Are, is, are they in the decision-making process?
0: Uh, absolutely. Uh, so the evaluation of this includes the City uh, for sure obviously the the actual signing and the construction the oversight of that uh, is is by Metrolinks and they 're working with Infrastructure Ontario for that. but the city of Hamilton has a critical role in that and of course, when it comes to the operating and maintenance agreement, that is something that the city signs with Metrolinks. Uh, which will then also bind the, the third party. So uh, that's a, a negotiation that uh, that obviously we can... You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.
1: Uh, during the LRT meeting yesterday at Hamilton City Hall, there were a number of different things being discussed. Uh, the idea, of course, of putting an extra stop at Bay Street and, uh, and King, which uh, obviously we talked about on the program last week. But there was also, rather unexpectedly, I should add, a discussion about whether or not Main Street should be converted to two-way. Now, that was talked about some time ago, and we were still discussing exactly where the LRT was going to go, and there are still some proponents who think that it should be on Main Street and not on King. That's not likely to happen, obviously. But what about the conversion to to a street on Main? Uh, It's it's a pretty dicey issue. And uh, Councillor Jason Farr put forth a notice of motion that he was going to ask for a study about this, uh, some people would rather they didn't even bother to look at it. Others think it's a thing that has to be done sooner than later, so why not now? John Best uh, from the Bay Observer joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this morning. John, how are you doing today?
2: I'm well, thanks, Bill.
1: Uh, first of all, were you surprised this even came up yesterday?
2: well i'm I'm never surprised uh, <laughs> at, at what comes up at at these meetings i mean there's so much uh i mean I, I i find myself agreeing with the mayor when he started talking about he was referring to the the proposal for the bay street stop but yeah. nonetheless he talked about you know sort sort of making these transit decisions on the fly and uh i certainly agree with that i mean i i i wonder uh and you know the good news is the councillor farr did call for a study uh and and frankly, uh, I, you know, I, I think we need certainly to study all of these issues because there is a, a segment, and the Chamber of Commerce uh, was at the meeting yesterday uh, regarding Bay Street, but they've also been a big proponent of uh, making Main Street into a two-way street. And my question is, is any of this opinion informed by any kind of technical study of of any sort? Or do we just get our crayons out and start marking up maps? So I, I think, you know, if if there's any chance that this thing could happen, we do need we do need a study and we need an impartial study, not one of these, these studies where they you know, where the consultant sorta of tries to find out which way the wind's blowing and then uh, you know, uh creates a study that supports that. We, we need uh, somebody that knows what they're doing um, looking at these various issues.
1: You raise a couple of different and very important aspects to this conversation. And one, of course, is this independent study, and uh, the key word there being independent. I, I, the best example I can recall of this, and I don't want to dig up the stadium issue, but was when that came out, uh, they hired a consultant which uh, came back and, and gave a report that said, yeah, the West Harbor would be an ideal place for a stadium. The irony there is that very same consultant company was hired about 10 years before that to do the West Harbor Plan and said, no, don't ever put a stadium there. So, I mean, you know, which begs the question, are these consultants that get hired to do these reports uh, told ahead of time, hey, by the way, here's your result, here's the conclusion, now work backwards and, and try to to validate that. So, I mean, it depends on really who you hire, doesn't it, John?
2: Well, it does, and and I don't want to, you know, start uh, slandering the entire consulting uh, profession, but I, I really feel, and and I in, incidentally ran into a similar situation uh, with the Gateway Council when we were talking about the Niagara to GTA, where oh, yeah. there was a consultant study initially done that fully supported the need for the road, and then... A study came out when the government's uh, political thinking had changed on the project after the government had soured on the project, in fact, after there was a change in government. And some of the same consultants were attached to a report that said, well, we can wait, we don't need it. So, uh, you know, I I think the consulting profession is a little bit like the polling profession right now. Uh, we, We really, you know more often than not, I feel that they're being brought in to validate decisions that have already been made rather than to provide independent advice. And I I hate to make a blanket statement like that because, uh, you know, there's some really fine consultants. But uh, around the traffic area, I I have to tell you that uh, I've seen a number of these over the years. And, um, you know, you you have to take them with a bit of skepticism.
1: Well, let's face it. I mean, (laughs) on, on just about every issue, including LRT, Uh, You know, you can get one report that's going to say, yeah, the city is totally in favor of this. And that was the message that was being given to Queen's Park for the longest time. But you and I both know that there's a considerable amount of opposition to this, too. Uh, So, you know, it depends on exactly who's writing the report and what. So whether or not they're even going to do that, I'm not even sure. Because I'm not even sure if Council Farr is going to present the motion. Because once he has a discussion with his colleagues back in the offices at City Hall... Uh, I'm not so sure he's going to think he's going to have any momentum to try to carry this through. But is it a debate and a discussion that we need to have?
2: Well, I think so, because it's bubbling under the surface. Uh, I mean, there is pressure, certainly uh, uh, from the Chamber of Commerce. I know I I met with uh, Mr. Loomis a a couple of years ago, and I recall him talking about Main Street and saying we've got to get cars off Main Street. And, um, you know, at that time it was clear to me that... uh, you know, that there's a group in the community that, uh, for whatever reason, uh, want to make Main Street a two-way street. And it might make all the sense in the world, but uh, without any kind of, uh, you know, some kind of independent verification and and some sense of uh, where the traffic flows go, I I would be leery about making any drastic move. I mean, to me, uh, you know, the Main Street, the the one-way street conversions that we've had in Hamilton. I don't have a problem so far with with any of the ones I've seen. But there's uh, in this city we always seem to go hog wild. So if if one main street conversion if one street conversion makes sense, all of a sudden it's got to be every single street. And I don't think that works in a in a bi-level city like Hamilton. I think we still need a mix of um of through streets, uh one way and uh and converted uh, one ways where they make sense.
1: What about Main Street specifically? And, and, and let's not do this in isolation. I mean, obviously, we know that King Street's going to be greatly impacted by construction over the next couple of years once they put the shovels in the ground for this LRT thing. I mean, Paul Johnson, uh, who's going to join us later on the show, as a matter of fact, uh, to give us an update on this, told us a, a while ago that there's going to be a considerable hole down in most the, through the city here. So do you do you take that into consideration and say well then you know all that traffic's going to have to move to another street is it going to be Cannon Street or is it going to be Main Street is that part of this discussion
2: Well I think I think the general thought was that it would be both Cannon and Main because they're they're one-way streets running in opposite directions so they would clearly uh, because uh, from what I can see I mean I know there's provision for a little bit of uh, vehicular traffic in the in the core on King Street but frankly I think uh it, th- there's going to be very little vehicular traffic it's going to be such a deterrent uh, with with the LRT there so effectively i think king street becomes almost a pedestrianized mall from uh wellington uh certainly through to mary where the where the street then widens out a little bit um uh, so you know i think that's the reality we're dealing with and and to now start talking about changing other streets when we don't really I don't think the traffic studies frankly have been done by Metrolinx to determine the impact of the LRT and until that work is done I can't imagine us talking about any uh, street conversions until we we see what uh, what the MetroLinks work is going to reveal.
1: Let's the, the description I often hear of Main Street from those who want the the, the conversion and and those who echo what uh, Keenan Lewis from the Chamber has been saying for the last little while, that we need to get cars off there. That's, a, I think, a pretty fair characterization of, of the way a lot of people feel about this. But they say, well, you've got a highway running right through the city here, and then, you know, you can go from one end of the city to the other in 20 minutes if you hit all the lights properly and everything like that. Uh, yet the people that are wanting to keep this as a one-way street say, yeah, it, we can, and that's a good thing. Uh, you know this idea that if you slow traffic down, people are going to get out and shop and, and and go to these stores is is really I I always been a silly argument to me. I, and I I'm with you. I like the conversions that have happened so far, but does that necessarily mean that every street should be converted?
2: No, I, I I don't think so. And and I mean, let's face it. Main Street and Cannon Street decisions were made forty fifty years ago to to make them into traffic arteries. Front lawns were cut off. Additional lanes of traffic were added. Uh, frankly, the character of those streets is is not particularly redeemable. I don't think. Uh, yeah, I guess you can put bollards out, and and you know you can throw bicycle lanes in to provide a, a bit of a uh, a buffer between the traffic and the street. But the bottom line is those front yards are gone. Uh, those deep front yards that might have you know you see old pictures of Hamilton. You look at Main Street and. You know it's a tree lined uh street with uh you know significant front lawns that's all gone uh though you know it's right up the sidewalk and and then you're right you know the houses are you know fifteen feet back from the road so you know the that horse has left the barn and um i i don't think i think we should focus on on doing you know streets like King william for instance that really have tremendous potential uh with what's going on there Uh, let's work on the streets where where we can really make a difference uh, in terms of creating, you know, this whole complete street notion. Um, It's going to be very difficult, I suppose, (laughs) you know, but if you make Main Street a two-way street, then it certainly doesn't imply that you're going to cut down the number of traffic lanes.
1: Well, you probably will. I mean, you know, if you're going to allow parking on Main Street, and, of course, the the merchants, what what parts of Main there are, Merchants on are going to insist that there be street parking there. So, are the, are you, does that mean you get down to one lane of traffic in each direction then?
2: Well, probably. And and I guess my point is, you're not going to put grass back there um, because you're whether you have parking or you don't have parking. If if you take a four lane street and make it into a two way street, uh, all you're really doing is is moving the flow of traffic in two different directions, but you're not you're not re-pedestrianizing that street. Uh, it's, it's still going to be a four-lane-wide street full of traffic with houses right up against the sidewalk.
1: If, and in that, fact, they decide to do this.
2: Yeah, if, if, if they do. So, you know, if, if the idea was to turn Main Street back into some kind of a tree-lined uh, boulevard as it was at the turn of the last century, uh, you know, and, and of course, that, you know, we, we don't know. There, there's this notion, I guess, that traffic is somehow just going to go away. And uh, you know, I think that needs to be examined a little bit by by somebody that knows what they're talking about as well.
1: Well, and again, if the if part of the discussion and part of the end game here is to simply get people out of their cars, and you've heard that phrase oftentimes in this discussion when we talk about conversions and th- LRTs and things of this nature, uh, is, is that being oblivious to the fact that we're, this is still very much a vehicular society, and we can do what we can to make transit more convenient for people and and accessible for people. But at the same time, John, some people are still going to drive they, for what a variety of reasons, and not all of them bad either.
2: Most of uh, these the studies that I've looked at from MetroLink suggest not that some people are going to drive, uh, an increasing number of people are going to drive, and the transit investments are going to have some impact uh, of you know in the area of two or three percent moving people from cars to transit. But the trend, uh, frankly, is to increase automobile congestion. That's the trend, and that's what's being forecast even by Metrolink. So, you know, I, I think we have to make provision for reality as opposed to what we think we might like to see.
1: The other element here, that, and I'm sure this is going to be part of the discussion once it gets to Council, if in fact they ever debate this again, uh, is the concern, and I think a legitimate one too, that for those who are still going to drive or need to drive, and there were commercial vehicles into this conversation too, I mean, that still are not going to take public transit to get their goods back and forth. So there's that element. Plus, as you mentioned, the variety of people that need to drive or will drive no matter what. Um, you make it difficult for them to go on the main arteries, John. You know what's going to happen is they're simply going to go off into the neighborhoods to get to where they want to go. And that's going to be problematic from a safety standpoint and and from a, a pollution standpoint. If that's the argument, I mean, if you're moving it off Main Street and onto Hunter or someplace else, are you really solving anything?
2: Well, uh, you know, those are streets that that really do have some potential. I think for some of this uh, pedestrianization that that uh, people are talking about, and I and I think is a good thing. Um, you know, we've got to be careful that we don't simply migrate the problem onto. Side streets that may very well have some potential to become more of a people place.
1: Well, I mean, let's use uh, let's use Centennial Parkway as an example. Uh, you talk to Councilor Marula, who is to the left of center on an awful lot of issues. I think Sam would be the first to admit that. Uh, but he was very much in favor of the expressway when he ran for office and continued to be a very strong supporter to build the expressway. And his main reason, he said, was to get the vehicular traffic out of his area, and especially off Centennial Parkway and the other major thoroughfares. Well, it's worked. Yes, it has. Notwithstanding we've got problems on the Red Hill, but it's worked, and now Centennial Parkway is a much different street than it was 8 or 10 years ago.
2: Oh, yeah. I can remember uh, when I was working in that area, you get on Centennial Parkway heading uh, south, and uh... it would take uh... it could take you fifteen minutes to get from barton street to queenston road uh... now it's uh... much better and uh... of course with the traffic moving at optimum speeds, you you that's one of the reasons by the way when when they did the air quality study on the red hill and and thank god uh... somebody ordered the city to do a before and after test they did a, a before air quality test in in the area where the red hill was going to go and then they did a, a second test uh, after it had been up and running for a couple of years and instead of uh you know the pollutants going up they actually went down and and even the city uh when they were promoting the red hill did not predict that so it it just you know goes to show that uh, you, you need to get some experience in some of these things um, you know, it's uh, not always, so, you know, forecasting is a is a pretty inexact science.
1: The bottom line here, I think, is that if, in fact, council is even going to entertain this idea of, of converting Main Street to two-way streets, that there's a lot of work has to be done here, a lot of statistics that better be placed before council, and a lot of facts about what the implications are going to be before they are just arbitrarily decide, yeah, we've done it on other streets, let's do it on this one.
2: Well, let's get some expertise on it. And you know, my understanding is that, that part of what is ahead of us with the LRT project is that there's going to be a significant traffic impact study, which will hopefully look at the impact of the of the King Street LRT on adjacent streets and roads. And that's MetroLink's that's doing that. Uh, they have lots of money, so it should be a thorough study. Uh, let them have that study before we get. Marking up the map, uh, you know, from an amateur standpoint, and uh, you know, g- getting discussions going that might not make any sense at all once that uh, MetroLink's work is done.
0: You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from nine to noon on AM 900 CHML.
1: Hamilton has a new head for the Economic Development Department. Uh, actually. He uh, used to be working in the Urban Renewal Department for downtown, and uh, he's uh, got a much bigger scope now. His name, of course, is Glenn Norton. You know him, you love him, and uh, he's still with us here at the City of Hamilton. Glenn, welcome to the program. Good to have you with us today. Thank you very much, Phil. And first and foremost, congratulations. Thank you. I appreciate it. This is, uh, this is an interesting time. Uh, to, uh, Neil Everson, we should mention, uh, who's been the head of the Economic Development Department for the longest time here, is retiring at the end of the year, so there's uh, big shoes to fill with the work that he's done there
3: boy you've got that right, absolutely,
1: uh, but you've got as I was just telling some of the staff here this morning said you know what's what's going on there and I, well, first of all, you've been with the city for a long time, and you you anybody knows what's going on in the city it's Glenn Norton because you've had your hand on a lot of the projects in the downtown area over the last little while, but uh, I want to give a shout out. And I know you'll do this anyway, but I'll bring the subject up right now, about your staff in the Economic Development yeah. Department. I mean, Neil has been an outstanding leader for many, many years, but there's an awful lot of great and very talented people in that active department.
3: Oh, thank you for acknowledging that, Bill. You're absolutely correct. Uh, this job would not be... Uh, A a challenge that I would feel up to without the quality of the professionals, the passionate professionals we have here. So I'm really pleased to be taking over a team that Neil has built up over the last uh, 17 years.
1: Yeah, and I'm not going to start mentioning names because we'll leave somebody out and we don't want yeah. to do that either. But but b- back to, to the challenges ahead, though, and and this is an interesting time. Uh, uh, we've had some great successes uh, over the last uh, few years, Glenn, of course, of uh, downtown projects that you've been involved in, but you've also, of course, uh, uh, knowledgeable about some of the other things that are going on. But this is really no time to take your foot off the gas, is it?
3: Absolutely not. And the, the challenges that we're going to face going forward, a lot of them are, are international in scope, Bill. So there's limited amounts of reaction we can do to them. We're really going to have to play with our strengths and our opportunities because we can't do anything about the slow global economy. We can't do anything about the tariffs and uh, protectionism that the new president in the United States might bring in. So we're going to have to really focus on local features and what can we do to help uh, local businesses survive and to help other businesses choose to relocate here.
1: How do you balance that, though, Glenn, uh, going forward? Uh, because uh, the city, I think, has, has done a pretty decent job in the last little while about being proactive uh, in, in many of the things that they've done, in the Economic Development Department especially. But as, as you've just alluded, uh, there are some things to which they're going to have to be reactive to, and, and you know, as external forces are going to have a pretty huge impact, I would think, on what you can do here.
3: Yep, there's always going to be things that, that we have to be reactive to. That's the reality for any city. Um, but I think we just have so many opportunities here in terms of our, our workforce and the skill set that we have. Um, and when you think about the educational partners we have, Mohawk, McMaster, um, and others, we've got a great uh, institutional base of knowledge. So I think we've got a, a bit of a leg up when you take the that, plus you consider our geographic location midway between uh, the hub of Toronto and the U.S. border. And the uh, multimodal transportation system that we have here, we we still have a lot to be uh, thankful for, and a lot of opportunities that we can capitalize on.
1: Where do you look uh, as as we go forward here? I just had a discussion uh, before you joined us. I know you just got out of a meeting, but uh, just before you joined us, I had Paul Johnson on the show talking about the uh, a good deal of the stuff that was talked about yesterday at the LRT uh, subcommittee meeting. Uh, is is that going to be the driving force, or one of the driving forces for EcDev going forward? Is is that LRT and the potential there?
3: Well, it, it, certainly we plan on capitalizing on the uplift that will be coming from the LIT. But we have many other opportunities um, to create living wage jobs and to create more non-residential tax assessment. I mean, really, that's the broad mandate of the Economic Development Department. So, I mean, we have some uh, great opportunities coming up on the uh, former Stelco lands, right? That we can... When the new owners come in, certainly there's an expectation that much of the land there is surplus to the needs of a modern steel mill. So the idea is to capture those lands still as employment lands, but as new types of employment, maybe not necessarily smokestack, maybe something else. But I think that we could put in a lot of good companies in very short order on that land that wouldn't have to have too much done to it to, uh, to be welcoming to new industry.
1: Have you had any discussions at all with the, uh, the bedrock people?
3: Um, I have not been uh, at the table, uh, Bill, up to now because of my uh, sure. previous role. Certainly the city has, and I will now have a seat at that table uh, because of my new director role. Um, but, you know, I, I know a little bit about what's going on, and it's nothing that isn't in the press, that there is certainly some land that will be surplus, and Bedrock uh, wisely don't want to hang on to any more land than they need. So there will be an opportunity to acquire some land and return that to uh, uh, employment lands and, and get more people working.
1: What's what's the status of, about available lands right now? As, and, and we've heard the term oftentimes, of course, uh, shovel-ready. Yeah. I had a discussion with uh, Mayor Goldwing from Burlington uh, just a little while ago and and he said that you know one of the big challenges that they're facing right now is is the fact that they're almost tapped out when it comes to available land for uh a commercial and industrial development. Uh, Mississauga is facing the same sort of situation right now, which I, I suppose is good news for Hamilton because they you know, they're, they're going to call you now.
3: That's exactly right. Can you That's- can
1: you do something for them when they do call?
3: Uh, well, there's two answers to that. Yes, we can between us um as the city owning some land and also as the private developers owning some land we we think we need to expand that we need to get more of it shovel ready cuz some of it is not yet uh, been rezoned and does not have site servicing to the lot line so as part of our ask of council in our upcoming budget negotiations Uh, we are asking for authorization to establish a $30 million line of credit that we could use to purchase and or service additional industrial lands. And these all don't need to be greenfield, by the way, Bill. We we have some lands on the waterfront um, in the older areas that we could purchase and, and clean up. So the idea is to bring them to a state that when somebody comes and says, oh, I need to be moving, I want to come here, but I need to be here in 18 months. You need to have service land ready to go. So, although we have lots of land, not all of it is serviced.
1: Well, what's the stock like right now? If you get a phone call after you finish with me here today, is there is there service, service land right now that you could say, yeah, like, come on, have a look at this?
3: Yeah, there there is. Um,
1: right, I'm thinking of the seen- industrial parks, obviously, the Red Hill Park and...
3: Exactly. And, and the
1: well, I'll get into the other one in just a second.
3: Yeah, you're going to talk about the airport lands. Aren't yeah, you? yeah. Yeah, so that's the other one. That's the private sector uh, lands, and some of those are serviced and ready to go. And the lands of the city owner, primarily in the Red Hill. We have about 25 acres of land in the Red Hill. But you see, that doesn't take long. A, a typical company looking to establish a plant uh, is going to need like 10 acres. So we really don't have um, a lot for a variety of companies. So our objective is to get more of that ready to go. And much of that would be in uh, existing industrial parks, expansions to them. But as I said, if we can also make sure we don't overlook the brownfields, the the lands down in the uh, harbor and the older industrial areas that are underutilized right now.
1: Talk to me about partnerships then, Glenn. Uh, Mm -hmm. And and when you mention the brownfields and you're talking about the north end of the city, obviously the Port Authority comes into mind here. Exactly. Uh, and, and and the working relationship that the city has with uh, with those agencies, uh, as you say, it doesn't have to be land that's owned by the city necessarily. But you've got to have a pretty decent relationship with uh, people like the Port Authority and others to to be able to attract uh, th- those sorts of businesses down there.
3: Absolutely, Bill. And I, I believe the city does have a good working relationship with the Port Authority. We're on the same page in attract in you uh, know our desire to attract. Good businesses that can survive over the long term here. Um, you've noticed that a fair number of the new projects down in the airport or the uh, uh, Port Authority lands are related to the agribusiness, mm-hmm. and that's a very wise move. A, a large component of Hamilton's economy is based uh, in the agribusiness and uh, to have the port lands available there so that products can be uh, trans-shipped is, uh, is an absolute uh, fantastic advantage for us over many other cities. So we intend on continuing those partnerships, growing them, and uh, working together.
1: Let's All right, let's get into the airport situation. Uh, I, back to my time on council, back around uh, the turn of the, of the century, or there, there around 2000, uh, the biggest challenge at that point was trying to assemble lands and get everything ready for the airport. And, and I don't want to get into all the legal and political battles that have been fought and, and eventually won, of course, to get to a, where we are right now. But uh, as you mentioned, there's uh, there's a partnership situation up there between the airport, between uh, private sector ownership of some of this land, and, and, of course, the city owning some of this land. What's the status? How soon can we get shovels into the ground in that land? Because that seems to me to be the next frontier for you.
3: Yeah, so um, the good news is, Bill, that some of this is ready to go now. Some of the private sector land, um, if you think of as you're driving up Upper James and you come to Dickinson Road, you know, just look to your right and you will see land that is already serviced. Road is in, utilities are there water ponds are there, that is ready to go and is available on the market uh, to buy right now. So uh, the private sector uh, organization that owns it is actively marketing it it and looking for um, businesses that want to move there. I I think what they would want to do is um, have some affinity, some need for an airport, right? That's why you would choose to be that close. Sure, sure. Because your product is probably time sensitive and you need to either have supplies coming in or finished product going out uh, through the airport.
1: With that in mind, uh, I I, I also want to talk about something else that oftentimes gets left out of the conversation, because we've talked about attracting new businesses, and that's certainly uh, one of the mandates of the Economic Development Department. But you touched on something just a second ago, Glenn, that uh, I think a lot of us need to, to be reminded of, and that's job retention and business retention. You don't want businesses leaving this area either.
3: Oh, absolutely. And and if you wanted to sort of put it into a ratio of, of effort and time spent, I would say probably 80% of our effort and time goes into uh, working with existing businesses, helping them to stay here and to grow. Expansion is great. And really only 20% goes into attracting uh, the new businesses. And that's a rule of thumb that... Probably every economic development department across North America would be working on a similar type of ratio. You, you work with what you've got first, you respect the people who are paying the bills now, and uh, you, you keep your eye open for and you actively market the other 20% of the time, but uh, you
1: don't count on that. And those are the stories you don't hear an awful lot about, are they? I'm, you know, when you hear of successes of of the Canada breads that are coming in here, and 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 some of the other p- companies that have located here in Hamilton over the last little while, and those are great, and they make the headlines. But you know, if you've got a company that's been here for some time and they start getting into expansion mode and adding new jobs, oftentimes doesn't make the news. But that's that's just as big a victory for the active department.
3: Absolutely, it is. In fact, I'd say in some ways it's a bigger victory because we have We have retained somebody here, and that 's probably somebody we know right we 've come to know them. Uh, their employees have probably bought a home here you don 't want to have that upset you don 't want them leaving you don 't want people 's lives upset so it 's very important to us to continue to work with and service well our existing businesses.
1: We talk about some of the challenges here what going forward here obviously attracting. Uh, businesses but what what do you look as as some of the challenges and and potential obstacles as you go forward here yeah like you say it's it's been a great ten or fifteen years now we've seen some some remarkable growth here in in many sectors but but you know day is gonna present new challenges what are you foreseeing
3: so we actually did some work um for our current five-year action plan, right? So it's an extension of the economic development strategy, which was formulated uh, five years ago now. It was time to update it, so we did did an update and we went back out to the stakeholders, we went back out to big business, small business, and everything in between, to see what are the challenges you're seeing? What do you need from us? And interesting, one of the challenges that it was across all sizes of business, all types of businesses, is the concern about an appropriately skilled workforce over the next 10 years. So that's something we need to be uh, conscious of. We need to work with our educational partners, we need to work with uh, Workforce Planning Hamilton to make sure that we have those workers with the right skills um, and attributes here to service those companies or, or companies will leave to find the workforce. It's, it's a different phenomenon than it was many years ago where wherever a company went people would follow. Now it's a little bit more about the companies are following the people
1: and looking for that workforce is an it advantage it must be an advantage then to to have that resource of of expertise that we have for for instance at the innovation park and and the work that's going on over there uh, to to be able to train and attract those those sorts of people
3: it, it, absolutely those are the type of partnerships with things like innovation Factory, the McMaster Innovation park uh, again Mohawk McMaster. Um, all those help us. The other thing that helps us, Bill, is quite frankly, is the quality of life that we are able to say we have here. A lot of people, particularly the uh, the millennials, again, are choosing to uh, a city and then picking a job afterwards because they want to be there. It's it's got a certain vibrancy or a certain buzz that that they relate to. So we heard over and over again that we have to continue to keep the emphasis on quality of life. That we have to try and keep the city affordable, which is a challenge as we 've become more successful you 've seen how housing prices have risen, but we need to continue to work on uh, tourism and cultural types of facilities that say to people, "I like Hamilton, I want to be there, and I want to for those that are already here, I want to stay there
1: There was a time not too many generations ago when you know the the idea of economic development and grabbing jobs and retaining jobs was, uh, well, let's get a factory in here with about 5,000 employees, and, and you know, we're, we're in good shape then. Uh, that doesn't happen very often, if at all, anymore, Glenn. Uh, no. You just touched on this a few minutes ago. Uh, one of the things that we start seeing here are startups, and, and, you know, the Innovation Park and the Innovation Factory and the City of Hamilton and the Chamber yeah. of Commerce have been working very hard. What can ECDEV do? You don't create those jobs, but you need to create a, an atmosphere for those jobs to, to flourish. How do you do that?
3: Absolutely, and and you touched upon it in terms of saying working with our key partners, you know, Chamber of Commerce um, being a key one amongst them. Hearing from them, what do small businesses need to be successful? What do we have to change? What do we have to do? So, as you're probably aware, we have the Small Business Enterprise Center here on the ground floor of City Hall. That is part of ECDev. and they are working with startups. They administer provincial uh, loan and grant programs. They do business planning. They do seminars. They have a great staff that are small business, experienced people themselves that are helping businesses uh, getting going. So we have a big stake in that ground. Um, again we also uh, try and attract those type of entrepreneurs by the type of advertising and the type of public works we, doing, we, we are doing in other cities. So some of the articles you're seeing running in Toronto are really geared to attracting those startups and those uh, creative individuals. Who are going to bring a job here or are going to create a small company and grow it here
1: what are they saying what what is the attraction because i'm i'm fascinated when i talk every year of course they have the lines competition competition glenn and, yeah. and you know i i always have the finalists on the show here and, and as i get talking to a lot of these people and they're all involved in startups of course and many of them are, are from this general area. I'm talking about a 50 or 60 mile radius, but they gravitate to Hamilton at some point and say, "I want to. Do, I want the business to be here." And and eventually, oftentimes, they even move here themselves and start their families here. What what is what are they seeing about Hamilton? What are you hearing from those people that makes this uh, such a magnet right now?
3: Yeah, and that's a great question, Bill, and it's. It's a unique combination of several things. There is no one factor because, boy, if there was, we would just keep multiplying that factor, right? Um, it's, it's a bit about the spirit of collaboration that is here. People are saying, hey, um, there's lots of room for one thing. So it's not the competitive spirit that says, my win is at your loss. Um, so we're seeing that a lot. People are willing to help in the, in the digital business, in the animation business, in the restaurant business. Uh, we have people that are collaborating, that are encouraging each other to do better, to do well, because they realize in a cluster sort of concept, uh, people will be attracted to that area because of the cluster. Same idea when you go to buy a car, right? You go to a, a strip of six car dealerships all in a row. It's, it's a cluster. Mm-hmm. It makes sense. It's an economic uh, model that makes absolute sense. So we have that happening here. We also have you know, some natural things that make us attractive. When I say natural, I mean nature. We have the waterfront. Pretty nice waterfront. We have the escarpment, which is, you know, just a world-class environment for hiking and waterfalls. So we've got a lot of things that people are saying, that makes a nice lifestyle. I can live there and I can work there. It's a compact city. I can get around. I've got, uh, you know, good public transit. I don't need to own a car. Um, I can meet up with people in a cool coffee shop and collaborate on a project. So we've got all those things uh, going for us and uh, more that I'm probably forgetting to mention. Um, well, the, the educational partners would be one, right? The research sure. that's going on at McMack, the, the apprenticeship programs and things like the insurance program up at Mohawk. We have some really, really good educational partners. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.